In this recording, Alex Barber, the author of Book 3, discusses Kant's moral philosophy with Honora O'Neill, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Cambridge. Professor O'Neill is also known as Baroness O'Neill of Bengav, after she joined the House of Lords as a cross-party member in 1999. Honora, I'd like to start by asking you briefly about your work in Parliament. How far do your Kantian sympathies shape how you approach this work? Have you ever found yourself needing to persuade utilitarians, for example, of where they've gone wrong? There are an awful lot of things that go into producing good legislation, and I think people's moral position is one of them. That said, I find very few people are straightforwardly utilitarians and think that everything should be subject to a calculation of the expected benefit. That's probably largely because those calculations aren't very feasible. So you've got in any parliament a range of people with hugely varied moral positions. No doubt some utilitarians, some Kantians, many people of religious faith, many people with uh, complex combinations of positions. But I should emphasize that utilitarians have no monopoly on taking means ends reasoning and prudential reasoning seriously. They do, of course, emphasize it very strongly. But everybody I've ever met who is interested in good legislation also has to take it seriously. It's not as though Kant, for example, was indifferent to serious means ends reasoning. Let's talk about Kant's moral philosophy rather than its application in Parliament. One of the best-known elements of Kant's moral philosophy is his demand that we act only on maxims that are universalizable, or in his words, I ought never to act except in such a way that I can also will that my maxim should become a universal law. Can you unpack that? What does it amount to in practice? I think it amounts to the thought, don't make an exception of your own case. If you act on uh, some principle that could work for you but actually couldn't work for other people, then probably you are making an exception of your own case. For example, if I say, well, uh, I would very much like uh, other people to uh, accept my instructions... I would like to be a slave master, for example, then I do have to think about the following. If I were a slave master, then that doesn't work unless some other people are slaves. If those other people are slaves, then it's not open to them to act on the principle of being a slave master. Now, that's an absurd case, isn't it? But it does suggest that principles of coercing and deceiving other people, principles that damage or destroy other people's capacities for action are not universalizable principles, but principles that make an exception of one's own case. Kant starts his discussion by setting out to find something that is unconditionally good, and he reaches the conclusion that the only thing that is unconditionally good is a good will. Can you explain what he means by a good will and why he thinks that is the only thing that is unconditionally good. Let me start with the second point. If we tell ourselves that some ordinary thing in the world, Kant gives the examples of riches or talents, is good, we realise that it can be good for certain purposes but not others. Or take health, which we all think is a great good, and it is a great good. But we can also understand the thought, oh, that Hitler had been less healthy. Wouldn't that have been a better world? It surely would. And all these ordinary good things in the world are good in many circumstances or 
even perhaps in a few circumstances, but they aren't unconditionally good. Now, the idea of something being unconditionally good is that you don't have to make additional assumptions to understand why it is good. And as a simple thought experiment, try this. If you ask yourself, would it be ever a better situation for someone to have ill will towards others than for them to have goodwill, I think you can see that even when somebody acts harmfully or stupidly, it's better for them to have a good than an ill will. That said, of course, we don't know what a good will is just like that. And Kant's main aim in the beginning of the groundwork is to try to explicate what it would be to have a good will. What sort of principles would such a will have to adopt? And he suggests that they couldn't be conditional principles. They couldn't be principles in which we simply assert that something is good. They have to be principles that could be principles in any circumstances. Why is that? Well, if it's conditional, then you get the the problem of the exceptions, don't you? That if you say, well, a principle is good provided it meets the condition of maximising wealth or it meets the condition of uh, helping the people I like, those would be two simple examples of conditional principles, then we have to ask ourselves, what would a world be like in which a principle of wealth maximization were taken as fundamental to life? And the answer is that that would be a pretty brutal world of competition and damage and harm to many people. Or ask yourself what it would be like if it was not a principle of wealth maximization, but a principle of achieving what people want. Immediately you have to ask, well, don't some people want awful things? They want harm for other people. They want disproportionate resources for themselves. The satisfaction of preferences is not going to produce an unconditionally good world. It might be a world that is good enough for some people, but disastrous for others. We've been talking about the importance for Kant of unconditional goodness. What's the link between this and the universalizability requirement that we talked about earlier? It's extremely close, because a universalizable principle is a principle that could be a principle for anybody, so it doesn't invoke some particular aspect which or feature of some people uh, that other people lack. It doesn't, for example, say uh, this is a principle only for men or only for women or only for people living in rich countries or only for people living in poor countries. The principles that Kant thinks will be unconditional are those that don't refer to a condition that is met by some um, human beings but not by other human beings. Kant later reformulates the universalizability requirement as the demand that we treat humanity never simply as a means, but always at the same time as an end. But what does this amount to in practice? Is he saying that we should never take a bus or take a taxi because to do so would be to treat the driver merely as a means to the end of getting somewhere? I would say that uh, this is the most culturally vibrant of Kant's formulations of this one idea of not making an exception of oneself. Uh, When he talks about how we treat others, he's looking at the whole matter from the perspective of the person on the receiving end. So, like many of us, he thinks that we shouldn't treat people as mere means, as tools. And, of course, 
taking a taxi or bus is not treating the driver as a mere means because the driver has freely chosen to take a job in which he is the driver of a bus and opens the door at the bus stop and so on. Now, the more difficult bit to understand is what is it to treat other people's as people as ends in themselves. How can there be something that is more than not treating them as mere means? I avoid treating someone as a mere means, providing I don't treat them as a thing, I don't coerce them, I don't deceive them. But what more do I have to do to treat them as ends? And Kant's idea is I have to regard them as being like me, a person who aims to do things in the world, who seeks to achieve things. And he cashes it out by saying that what we have to do to treat others as ends in themselves is to support them in their pursuit of le legitimate, permissible objectives. It doesn't mean that you have to join in if your best friend has some uh, unfortunate plan, for example, to uh, steal a large fortune. But it does mean that we support one another in the pursuit of our legitimate ends. What does he mean by humanity in that formulation? Kant thought of human beings and potentially other beings as rational beings. Of course, we're not merely rational beings, we're embodied beings, but we're rational, although we are finite and limited in our rationality, as in all other respects. So that in talking about humanity, he is talking about a wide range of human beings, and he did not, as would have been common among other people in writing in the 18th century, think only of human beings uh, in a typical European Christian society. He includes all of humanity. He wrote, to some extent, about, uh, for example, duties to animals, but this wasn't a central theme. Kant sometimes seems to be concerned only with rational agents. He seems to be concerned with what they should do and with why they are owed respect. But so many of our moral quandaries are about beings who aren't rational. I'm thinking, for example, about animals or young children or people with very severe mental disabilities. Does Kant just ignore their plight? No, but what I think one has to see is that Kant... Uh, is trying to work out the shape of a theory of duties or obligations, not a theory of rights primarily, although some of these duties may have corresponding rights. This sort of theory has to address itself to those beings that are capable of acting on the theory or acting on principles, hence the fact that it is directed to rational beings, by which he doesn't mean purely rational beings, but beings with some capacity for rationality. But he took for granted that on the receiving end of action, there will be many other sorts of beings, including, of course, children, people who are ill, including, indeed, non-human animals. I suspect that it is simply a, a sort of accidental reflection of contemporary preoccupation with the recipient perspective that has led people to think that there must be some deficiency in Kant's emphasis on agency. He emphasises agency because he's talking about what has to be done, not about what has to be received. The first question of Kant's ethics is, after all, what ought I do? It isn't 
the contemporary question, what ought I get? Kant is generally regarded as among the more difficult philosophers to read, even if his work is full of important insights. Do you have any advice for a student who's put off reading Kant because of the difficulty of doing so? I think this is an experience everybody who's read Kant has had. He's tougher to read than some other philosophers. There's no doubt about that. Uh, one of the things that I think is quite uh, a nice way is to pick up some of his shorter, later essays. Uh, one shouldn't bark one's shins straight away on the critique of pure reason, which is his, his masterpiece, uh, fascinating as it is. But the shorter essays, things like What is Enlightenment, uh, these can be fascinating. But the other thing is respect the history. Don't assume that Kant is trying to answer the same questions that someone else is trying to answer. That's generally a very good idea in reading a, a difficult text. Uh, go along with it for what uh, he's trying to answer and see if you can make sense with it. If you can't make sense of it, uh, drop it and come back later. Never persist with a text that is merely grazing your shins. Onora O'Neill, thank you very much. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.